This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is an apple. Some people might try to tell you that it's a banana. You might remember this TV ad that ran during the 2020 election here in the United States. They might scream banana, banana, banana over and over and over again. They might put banana in all caps. You might even start to believe that this is a banana. But it's not. This is an apple. The message is true. An apple can only be an apple, and you can't change that simply by calling it a banana. Now, if I tell you that ad was produced and aired on CNN, you might not think it very credible, depending on your view of that cable news network. And yet, it's still undeniable that an apple will always be just an apple, no matter what others might say. And yet, saying something that is obviously not true, like calling it a banana and then repeating it over and over and over, can have an effect on some people. If repeated enough, the information may be perceived as being true. Scientists call this phenomenon, quote, the illusory truth effect. It's also called something else, disinformation. I'm Paul Brandes. Welcome to this series. It's called simply Disinformation. And I'm Meredith Wilson, founder and CEO of Emergent Risk International, and I'll be providing analysis throughout each episode. It's no surprise that politicians say things that aren't true. They've been making things up, peddling distortions and disinformation since the beginning of the republic. That's what politicians do. For example, a month after taking office, President Biden said this to CNN's Anderson Cooper about the coronavirus vaccine. As you remember, but when you and I talked last, we talked about it's one thing to have the vaccine, which we didn't have when we came into office. Of course, that's not true. By the time Biden became president, the vaccine was already developed thanks to Operation Warp Speed, a crash effort by drug companies and the prior administration of President Donald Trump to get a vaccine to market. The fact is, before he was even sworn in as president, Biden had been vaccinated twice. Now, depending on where you stand on the political spectrum, Biden was either lying or it was Joe Biden being, well, Joe Biden, a politician known for verbal gaffes and misstating basic facts. You can decide for yourself. But what Biden did not do was repeat that false claim. He didn't beat it to death. That's important because in our rapid 24-7 world of short-lived news cycles, that one-off comment faded away. Had he repeated that false claim again and again, it obviously would have been deliberate and malicious, a completely different matter. When it comes to disinformation, the importance of repetition cannot be overstated. This is an embarrassment to our country. 
We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. The most prominent example of such repetition was the false claim that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. Donald Trump said this so often, beginning on election night 2020, as you just heard, and saying it so insistently that it resonated deeply on a cognitive basis with those who wanted to believe it, who needed to believe it. It helped spark the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. Two years later, the former president continues to spread this disinformation, warning of hijinks, in the November 2022 midterms. He spoke recently in Michigan. But frankly, your vote is the only thing that can stop it. So on November 8th, Michigan Patriots have to shatter every record because they cheat like hell, these people. They cheat like hell. As we've seen in prior episodes, one result of disinformation, if not one objective of it, is to undermine institutional trust, and that includes trust in the centuries-old institutions of our democracy. But I'm afraid we have never had, we, and I don't believe, I don't believe we'll ever have a fair election again. I don't believe it. But don't think all this started with Donald Trump. What he has said and continues to say is really only the most visible example of electoral-related disinformation. It frankly predates him, is far more subtle, it's also localized, and has roots in Russia. So, um, you know, in the last couple election cycles, particularly in the um, the presidential election cycle and previous to that in some of the election cycles in Moscow, we've seen a lot more of this hyper-local disinformation. One of the things that, uh, you know, that, that they found post-2016 was that people were far more likely to trust very local news sources. And so um, what kind of came out of that was that, first of all, there was already a lot of disinformation flowing through these Twitter accounts and different Facebook pages that looked like they were attached to like a WXYZ, you know, local station um, where they would start off with very mundane news and then they would gradually kind of turn it you know, just a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more until there was a lot of disinformation flowing through it. So we saw more of that in a more coordinated manner um, as the 2020 elections, 20 elections approached, where it was actually political strategists that were doing this, where they were running these, um, trying to remember what they're called, like pink news sites that essentially were targeted to hyper-local electorates and looked like local news sites, and they were basically just political propaganda. Um, so we're likely to see some more of that. So what does all of this mean for America's next election, the November midterms? Katie Harbath works at the intersection of elections, democracy, civics, and technology. She's the chief executive officer of Anchor Change, which advises clients on technology policy issues. She's also a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, the Integrity Institute, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. She's also the former public policy director at Facebook. What's the big picture in terms of the midterm election here and disinformation? And I suppose the question is, what are the key lessons that social media companies learned from, say, 2020, and what have they applied to that now? 
So if you look at the tech company announcements um, for what they're doing for the midterms versus 2020, it's pretty much the same, which both worries me, but also is good because sometimes the midterm elections get get less attention. But um, so they're, they're certainly doing a lot, but I think there's sort of the open question of, are they doing enough to look around corners um, of how this activity might be adapting? I think the other challenge that is different from 2020 to now is that the concept and how to deal with mis- and disinformation has gotten harder as you now have more candidates themselves just openly pushing this information. Um, and that really comes into tension with this country's traditions around First Amendment, protecting political speech, the right of candidates, and stuff like that. That is a new challenge that I think they've had to face since 2020. And a lot of the platforms, while they have policies to not, you know, um, to not allow things that could lead to election-related violence or suppressing of the vote or things of that nature, um, one of the things that I think that um, they're doing less of is some of that labeling that we saw in 2020. One of my favorites was when Donald Trump posted, I won this by a lot. And then underneath was a label that said Joe Biden is the projected winner um, of the presidency in 2020. So it's hard to say, you know, a lot of these things, we learn a lot after the fact. Um, I think a lot of this will depend to you on how the candidates accept or don't accept the results, what happens when there's some close elections and things of that nature. So it's a bit hard to look into the crystal ball, but um, it's certainly going to be something to keep an eye on. One thing to remember that's different from even just two years ago is that the number and type of social media platforms has really taken off, giving disinformation more places to spread and take root. We are also seeing this content get pushed to other platforms. So there's more platforms that you're seeing. In fact, you know, the big ones are actually doing quite a good job that you hear a lot of folks are, you know, podcasts, live audio, live video continue to be a big vector in this. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, obviously TikTok continues to explode um, and be used by more candidates. Um, Platforms like Twitch and Discord are being used by actors to, to push out information. You have messaging apps and in particular encrypted messaging apps that are even harder to deal with this as well. So not only do you have it being candidates that are pushing a lot of this, you have a lot of different platforms and areas that they have they have to push their messages, but also other bad actors and folks that would want to disrupt this stuff also have to to, to push it into that um, are going to be some of the bigger challenges here for the midterms and then going into 2024. I'm glad you brought up the encrypted angle here. I was going to get to that in a second, but uh, we're talking about things like Telegram, I think, and WhatsApp that have either end-to-end encryption or partial encryption and so forth. In terms of being able to spread disinformation, whether it's a candidate or just somebody at home just making things up and uh, manufacturing it, uh, either manufactured video or audio or something, or just text that's incorrect, the fact that you can encrypt that and no one else can see it. uh, Tell me about the impact of disinformation spreading and not being able to thwart it. So I think with encrypted apps, where you have to look at is more on 
one fold is, and WhatsApp did a lot of this when, when I was at Facebook and stuff like that. There's digital literacy campaigns to try to pre-bunk things or help people just become more critical consumers of the news that was important. Um, some of these apps as well um, create partnerships with different fact-checking organizations so people can WhatsApp the things that they're seeing to that fact-checking org to see if they're true or not. But then what the platforms have to do, because they can't see the content, you then have to be looking at the behavior. For instance, is an account spamming a lot of different groups in a short period of time? That behavior, now that could be spammy behavior. We don't know if it's mis or disinfo. We don't know what their goal is, but you have to go much more off of that um, versus what the content actually says. This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International, we build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back. The subject is the midterm election and disinformation. Our guest is Katie Harbath, the chief executive officer of Anchor Change, which advises clients on technology policy issues. You mentioned before the labeling of information. We see that on the major platforms like Twitter and so forth. Um, The others, are they doing that is the first question. And I think the subset of that, I've read a variety of things that even question the efficacy of that. Does it work? Do people, does it make people more likely to seek out other material or do they ignore it? I mean, tell me about uh, the labeling of content that is not uh, true. So like Facebook has said, they're going to put things, they're going to use more in a strategic and discretionary way, I think is like, I have to go look at the exact language, which means they're not going to do it on everything. And they're going to be making that decision. And it's sort of a black box in terms of, in terms of what, how they'll actually make the decision where they'll apply it. Um, Twitter has labels too that they said they'll put on. Twitter has said that they've seen labels be effective. I think the jury's still out in terms of the effectiveness of labels. Um, Some studies show they work, some don't. Also, you know, there's different designs of labels. So like Facebook has labels for misinfo where it's the black box that goes over an image um, to do something. Um, there's other ones that go underneath the content. So I think there's a lot of experimentation still happening too on the right um, design of these labels um, and how they might work. And then also how they work on different platforms. So in addition to there being more platforms than two years ago, there's the question of just how disinformation is flagged, if it's even flagged at all. So first, most of the platforms don't use humans to apply the labels. Most of the time, 
it would be like uh, machine learning classifiers trying to find the content and, and apply the labels. They were doing it. And there can be humans that do it too. But I think for the most part, they try to automate a lot of those different things. But yeah, other platforms aren't necessarily doing labels. I think the most famous ones would be the rise of some of these more um, free speech platforms. I'm putting it in quotes right now that we saw rise from the from the right side of the aisle, your truth socials, your parlors, your getters, your your gabs stuff like that, where um, I would highly doubt that we would see any sort of labeling. Are candidates gravitating to those platforms then knowing that there aren't going to be those kind of a barriers in their way? You know, I don't actually know how much they've really, I mean, obviously President Trump is using True Social um, because that's his and, and all of that. But most of the candidates are still using your more traditional social media because more because it's still a good place to do fundraising, to get emails, stuff like that. And it's also not necessarily the place. Like, I don't think many of these candidates, right? Most of them are, they're they're pushing, saying that the 2020 election was fraudulent, right? Like, it's not like their entire campaigns are around mis and disinfo. And they truly believe that the 2020 election was fraudulent. And many of them will police their own speech on those platforms to try to not get kicked off. Um, I'm not sure how many of them are using the other ones, but the user bases are so low that they certainly aren't the only ones that a lot of these candidates could use, I think. I've also read, Katie, that efforts to stamp out either disinformation or its cousin uh, misinformation, it's really, I've read it sort of compared to uh, the game of a -a whack-a-ball. Is that a reasonable description? How would you describe it? That is an exact description (laughs) that I used quite a bit um, with that. And that's why, so it is very hard in a reactive basis to catch all of this. And it really does feel like whack-a-mole. But, and so that's why I think too, that as we continue to think about how we need to approach mis- and disinformation, you're seeing, um, you're seeing some other tactics. All of the platforms are pushing what they call authoritative information, right? Information from election officials about where, when, and how to vote, how to register to vote, about the process. Um, we you know, are seeing some successes in terms of pre-bunking. So trying to get out there, you know, this worked with the Russia, the Russia invasion in Ukraine, getting out there ahead of time that people might encounter mis- and disinformation, what that might look like, et cetera. I also think that the general populace is getting much more um, savvy in terms of trying to and being just good, better um, consumers of information online. Now, it's not to say it's not still a problem, but I think it is better than 2016, where people didn't have, you know, realized that this was a problem at all, and maybe wouldn't have been as skeptical as they would be today if they see something. How can you do pre-bunking, which is a great concept, and the Ukraine example is really just a, a great example of that. How would you apply that, though, say, to an election when the result isn't going to be known? How to get ahead of that kind of uh, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, this is some of the work that the Bipartisan Policy Center elections team does and works with election officials and others on. I think, yes, you can't predict what the result's going to be, but you can try to instill more confidence in the process and help people get more educated about the process of voting, how the votes are counted, how those are tried to kept secure um, as part of that. You know, I think most people and most people think that after they cast their ballot, they don't think about it anymore. And a lot of us, a lot of people got quite the education in 2020 about the Electoral College and other things. And 
Now, you know, many of these officials are worried that this is going to spread to gubernatorial, Senate, congressional races, stuff like that. So helping people to just be more knowledgeable there, I think, is really important. And then also just of being like explaining what the process is afterwards. Like here are the legitimate ways that if somebody is questioning the vote, here's how recounts, when recounts we get um triggered uh, when, how the, the role of the courts and stuff like that for people to have who have legitimate grievances with the process have to go through that. Um, and I think that's just something that most of your everyday Americans don't really pay attention to. So a lot of this is Civics 101, making sure that people know how the electoral process works and what the legitimate lawful process is when a close election is contested. But a better understanding of how all this works is one thing, having a respect for and trust in the institutions that for nearly a quarter of a millennia have been the foundation of our fragile democracy is another. That trust is absolutely essential. And as the midterms loom, I asked Katie what she worries about most. I am nervous about that we are going to come out of the midterms without having a January 6th type event because it's not a presidential election year. And that we might think that 2020 was a bit of a fluke. That would be a very bad mistake for for us to make. Immediately coming out of the midterms, we're going to have the question of whether or not Donald Trump should be let back on the platforms. We are going to have many state legislatures, I think, Introducing more bills about not just the voting process, but also around content moderation on social media. We have at least two, a couple of Supreme Court cases that we are going to be looking at for the court to rule that could dramatically inhibit the platform's ability to fight mis and disinformation and bad activity on their platforms that we have to watch out for. I'd like to repeat what Katie just said. Just because this is not a presidential election year, which means there will not be any counting of electoral votes, is no reason for complacency. At some point after the midterms, we'll hear from both President Biden and former President Trump about whether they'll run in 2024. One or the other may run, perhaps both, perhaps neither. No one can say for sure. What is possible to say, though, is that disinformation and much that stems from it, distrust, anger, even the possibility of violence, is likely to remain. In our next episode, only three people have ever served as both Secretary of Defense and Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. We'll talk with one of them. Thanks to Katie Harbath of Anchor Change for her insights this week. Our sound designer and editor, Noah Fouts. Audio engineer, Nathan Corson. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. And for Meredith Wilson of Emergent Risk International, I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher? 
or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.